Welcome to this podcast from the Evidence Live Conference about the Manifesto for Better Evidence. I'm Helen MacDonald, Clinical Editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined by Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and Carl Hennigan, Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford. Carl, you said that this is about fixing or bettering the E in EBM or evidence-based medicine. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You said we're at the Evidence Live conference. I think it's, let's just go back to this seventh year now we've been going, and we started at BMA House, and it was very clear right from the outset that there were significant problems with the quality of evidence, particularly how research is done, how it's disseminated, and then how it's interpreted. And one of the key things about Uh, evidence-based medicine is you need high quality Mm. evidence and if you don't have that you just can't physically do evidence-based practice at the bedside and more so you can't commission health services so I think over time what's happened is as we've done the evidence live is particularly at the end of last year uh, I think it was accosted in the sort of outside uh, when we had an ice cream van Fiona was there and actually Ben Goldacre and and somebody just said, what we need, I think it was Ben actually said, we need a manifesto. And it was one of them things where you go away and sort of think, hmm. So can you rewind and tell us a bit about the problems? What we're trying to emphasise is the fact that everyone needs to use evidence, patients, clinicians, policymakers. And if the evidence itself is flawed or can't be trusted, then the whole process falls down around our ears. So the the aim is to move from problems to solutions. The problems are well outlined, and and I think we have to say they are substantial, and that we have, you know, without using too strong a word of it, a crisis of confidence in the evidence base. Um, and that's something that just is 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 a great. The the, the public have have said this recently in an Academy of Medical Sciences survey where they said only a third of them trusted the evidence, which is a really shocking result. And I think it means we've we've got to act. So we're talking about problems um, at the level of funding, ethics committee approval, um, the the regulatory system, the um, research bodies, the conflicts of interest throughout all of those parts of the system, the journal publication uh, system, which which has all sorts of problems inherent in it, um, and then the, the way in which that information is is, is translated into practice. And one of the things we're emphasizing, uh, certainly at Evidence Live and in the manifesto, is that patients and the public need to be absolutely engaged with all of those parts of the system. Um, and, and that's not happening enough at the moment. So, so why was a manifesto a good solution? Why, why do, how can that help us? There's a tendency to constantly pick away at the problems, which we have to continue to do. What we want to do is to move to a a solution-focused approach. (coughs) We want to make ourselves and other people accountable. And we want to also do it in a very public way, so that this is not just a few people um, trying to solve this vast problem, uh, but 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 an inclusive approach. So by publishing what is the first draft of this manifesto and encouraging people to get involved and seeing it as um, a list of tasks that can be broken down into smaller doable tasks by individual parts of the um, ecosystem, we, we can really begin to uh, tick those off and get a sense of, of progress and achievement. So so I think, yeah, I think it's a really important point what you make. So let's just wind back a bit. So if we go back, one of the things where we started out is what we need to do is just educate clinicians and educate the public and health professionals in evidence-based medicine. So they need to learn how to ask questions, search for evidence, and appraise the quality of that evidence. The problem is that is almost becoming impossible to do. 
because what's happened is in we have 1.2 million articles indexed on PubMed. You have nearly 40,000 clinical trials, 300,000 observational studies. So if you say to a professional out there, just search for the evidence, pull out what makes sense, they're just going to go, that's impossible to do. So when you understand that principle, you get to a point now where you go, actually, we have to roll back some of this evidence because otherwise there's no use in trying to say to anybody, practice evidence-based medicine. Every time you look at a journal article, every time you look at a study, all you're looking at something is that it's actually got some bias in it, it's got some problems. And I think this is really important because you look at diseases like cancer, you think there's a huge number of drugs coming on the market. But many of them, you can't trust the evidence, you can't see the effect size, and they cost an absolute fortune. The price has gone up sixfold in 10 years. So you're talking 10, 20,000 a year. And often you're talking about two to four weeks of disease-free progression survival. And everybody's left around, well, what do we do? And patients want these treatments. We'd like to give them, but nobody can tell what works or not. And I think that's, so the idea of a manifesto is to say, look, we want to get back to practicing evidence-based medicine, but to do that, we've got to fix these particular aspects. Why? So there are nine points in your manifesto. Yeah. I think it's time to unveil them and talk about those. Who wants to start? Okay, so um, importantly, the first point focuses on end users. In particular, uh, to, we want to emphasize the role of patients, uh, patients and the public, but also policymakers because we know that putting evidence into policy is also a real challenge. The issue about involving patients from the outset is to make sure that the first of all the research agenda is actually focused on making um, on asking questions that are relevant to patient needs we know that over the history of medical research um, funders and those who set the agenda and the researchers themselves have gone down avenues of their own interest rather than really understanding what it is that patients want answers to so that seems to be a crucial thing because waste in research which is something we want to we want to try to avoid is set up at the start if we ask unimportant or um, biased questions. Um, so putting patients at the centre um, and also making sure that health professionals are involved as well from the outset. So that's our first yeah. manifesto point. And our second is increasing the systematic use of existing evidence. So, you know, before you embark on some new research or you embark on some new study and implement it in practice, you should go back and look systematically at what's gone before. But, but, but often there may not be a systematic review, but that still means you can go back and say, well, what has gone previously to inform what I'm doing forward? And I think this is a, just a no-brainer. But boy, is it ignored a lot. But I think funders are increasingly starting to understand this, that the concept that actually if we're going to fund something, we need to know what systematically we've looked at, what's gone before, because we've wasted a lot of resources in the past. I think in terms of implementation, this is incredibly important, but there's problems within that area that I often see in commissioning them going, well, where do we go and look for what's gone before? How do we know? And that is uh, something that needs to be solved in that second manifesto point. So third is make research evidence relevant, replicable, and accessible to end users. The relevance piece we sort of address at the outset, but we want to make sure that the questions being asked are relevant to patients and the public. That's actually crucial, and also to clinicians who are going to have to implement it. Replicability in, in, in human medical research is a really crucial issue, and we know that reports of research are not adequate 
in medical journals at the moment to allow replication. The methods aren't properly described or fully enough described. The interventions aren't fully enough described. Um, but the other issue here, I think, for, for all of us involved in the manifesto, is that if you're really truly going to make research replicable, you've got to allow data sharing. You've got to you've got to have data sharing because otherwise, there's no way in which the analyses themselves can be replicated. You're not going to re reproduce a whole clinical trial. You've got to use the data as your, as your as your sort of starting point. So, data sharing for me is a, is a, well, for all of us, I think, is a, is a really important issue. And so then there's accessibility to end users, which is both uh, open access to the research itself but also the language used, making sure we have patient summaries um, and, and patient commentaries and public um, access to that information. The fourth manifesto point is to reduce questionable research practices, bias and conflicts of interest. So that's that fundamental principles within doing research. And I think we'll come to questionable research practices are practices that often researchers don't think they're important. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. It might be you've done a clinical trial and you don't publish the results within one year. You think it's okay and maybe you don't publish within two years. And that has a huge impact because it occurs so often. So everybody contributes in a little way, contributes to a huge problem. You might, when you're reporting your research, you might say, I'm going to miss some of the adverse events now or not report some aspects of the and that, again, is a question of research practice that contributes to huge problems in research. And I think it was interesting, there was a survey in the BMJ that when it looked in research integrity, that a third of researchers admitted to being aware of or having participated in a questionable research pr practice in their institution. So when you think about that, we really have to eradicate these issues and not tolerate them. And I think that's the bit. At the moment, we sort of say, yeah, they're there and they don't really matter. But actually, they do matter when you sum them all up. So we can't have a system going forward in the future where we continue to tolerate that half of all the research will not get published in full. It just seems ridiculous. So just to add to that, Carl, uh, the issue about conflicts of interest, which we've already talked about, there's a, a debate in my mind, in other people's minds perhaps also, whether whether pharmaceutical companies and device companies should be um, funding and managing the evaluation of their own products. And we've already, the BMJ, decided that we won't publish funded research funded by the tobacco industry. I have real concerns about research funded by the food industry. Uh, we have information that um, the, the more studies funded by industry systematically tend towards positive results and I think when you look at that and you begin to ask the question well, well why do we allow that why is that happening why is that information feeding into clinical practice and it's not being um, managed properly in that way so I, it, it, I, the jury remains out but I think unless there are obvious ways that we can actually improve that or, or remove or mi mitigate that positive publication bias or that positive conclusion bias of this research, I think we might have to say this is no longer okay. We can't, you know, it's a waste of everyone's effort time and it's actually distorting the clinical practice. So I think, so you, there are two different things in my mind. Is There's a sort of epidemiology of discovery. So I think that's okay for academics and industry to collaborate because they're yeah. trying to develop something new. And it's the point when you get to something like the phase three arena Absolutely. and you go, we now need to tell if this makes a difference or not. And what you're alluding to is, do we have a system that actually we incentivize independent trials for drugs that matter? Absolutely. It means the discovery research has to get better and the number of phase three trials gets less. 
The second aspect of that, though, is is, is the current system disincentivizing that? So at the moment, we have a 25-year patent. The discovery takes 10 years. The trials might make five years. And then there's a, like a rush to sell on pretty poor quality evidence. What happens if you say, actually, we need 10 years of discovery and a 10-year trial? So we've got to think slightly different. Do we extend the patent life? Do we do something radically different to incentivize high-quality evidence? So that if you do a drug, it's independently evaluated and been shown to work, we adopt it. And actually, you'll get a return on investment for the high quality versus now we're incentivized in a low quality arena and get to the market as fast as you can and try and make as much as you can really quickly. So there's a systematic problem in this way it's structured that I think needs to be thought about as well. I agree entirely. And that leads on to our fifth point, which is about the um, drug and device regulation. Um, we're asking that it be robust, transparent and independent. It doesn't seem um, a hugely controversial uh, requirement, but I think we're worried, many people are worried that that's not the case at the moment, that actually the, the drug and device regulators are overwhelmed, they are under-resourced, they are under pressure to be faster and to, to, to make quicker um, decisions at a time when, in fact, the complexity of the situation suggests we should slow down. We've got we've got um, the drug regulatory system um, isn't adequately sufficiently transparent. Some of the information is there, but you have to really dig to get it. And the issue we've just discussed in relation to the previous point about independence of the studies. Uh, one one proposal is that the regulators should require one or two of the pivotal trials, one or both of the pivotal trials, to be independent of the manufacturer of a drug or or device, uh, because at the moment um, we're not getting that that level of independence. So I think it's really interesting. I think if to, to think about regulation, I think there are two areas we've looked at. One is orphan drug designation for them rare diseases. And if you start to look at what's going on there on the regulatory track, it was designed to try and incentivize people to do research in this area. And what's happened is it's the exact opposite. What it's done is incentivize people to make a lot of money out of drugs that actually they don't research and actually they don't do very good evidence. And the second then is with this is we've sort of out of the austerity measures without really realizing it had this fast track approval process. So we've gone from, no, you don't need two trials. You can get away with one. Well, if there's a flaw introduced in that single trial, you're like, oh my gosh, actually, how do we tell what's going on? Not only that, they allow them to do them on surrogate endpoints for cancer drugs. So people are going, we have no way of understanding whether these drugs really make a difference or not. And often they promise post-marketing studies, and they're not done. And we're starting to look and see this emerging. So we're creating systems that actually don't make sense. The third thing we've looked at as well with this is adverse events. Uh, and we've got regulatory systems around the world that don't agree with each other. So a drug can be withdrawn here and still on the market in the US and vice versa. And in places like Africa, there is no regulatory system, so they never get withdrawn there. So they're not even talking to each other. So that is, a, a again, an obvious example where it should be a universal global system we're working to. And in that, it leads us to the next point, which is actually the production of better usable clinical guidelines which I think, you know, is if you go on PubMed and, and, and look at the annual growth in guidelines, there's about 6,000, I think, per year guidelines now produced. It's like an industry out there. 
And again, we talk about conflicts of interest. As an academic, it's like, go and get yourself attached to a guideline, you will get cited, your H-score index will go up, and you'll get more prominent. It's always like a marker of you and your establishment. It's like you're at the top table, you're on the guideline committee. But when you go there, what happens in the guideline, again, is there's increasing number of recommendations, so they get more and more recommendations. So you could end up with a clinical guideline with 82 recommendations, and actually in there, much of the evidence is poor quality. So we're trying to have a top-down approach to clinicians who increasingly are frustrated and finding these guidelines unusable. I think one of the most important points is there should be far less recommendations within them. And then recommendations should be about where there's really high quality evidence and an effect that makes a difference to patients. And that's the stuff you should be optimizing. And everything else should be saying, look, here's where we're up to. We're uncertain, but there's no recommendation. This is what we're aware of, and we'll try and keep you up to date if, if the evidence changes. I think that would help clinicians immensely, and it would make all of these guidance quite a lot of people redundant and a lot of recommendations redundant. Yeah, I think with the, 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 the idea of fewer better guidelines rather like fewer better research is a key one and, and that understanding, that willingness to engage with the idea of uncertainty which GPs and other doctors are constantly having to, having to manage and grown up conversations with patients about and the public about the fact that no intervention is risk-free. We're talking about the balance of benefits and harms and that very often the research evidence isn't able to, to help us at the moment and we need to continue the d discussion. I think also what's important is there's two different cultures. There's a, there's a sort of older side clinicians, which I'm becoming one of, who sort of come before a guideline era and understand the limitations of some of this evidence and approaches and do operate and say, you know, that doesn't apply. But the newer generation coming through are increasingly concerned and operating defensively and will we'll look at guideline and say, well, if NICE says do this, this is what I've got to do. And I think that's incredibly important to think about the influence that you have on practice and think about why is it we're doing more and more of these when actually we should be rolling back. I went out to Denmark recently and I did a workshop there who had basically been doing guidelines for 10 years and are now actually thinking of stopping their Royal College of GPs because they said basically we are increasingly frustrating our colleagues because we put them in a position and it's like a no-win position for them. And they're trying to say, well, what should we can do differently? And I think that's a really interesting question to try and get your head around, but it's certainly to do better guidelines and within them less, less recommendations. And the other thing on the guidelines, of course, is the number of guidelines produced by groups of um, uh, panellists who are conflicted. Um, we've done studies on this, we've published studies on this, which I think show a, a, a really extensive problem. So if we could have fewer guidelines, less conflicted, um, more focused on, on where the evidence is, is, is solid and useful. And also the whole problem of multimorbidity and the problem of, of actually creating usable tools for shared decision-making, which at the moment guidelines don't, don't do nearly enough of. So I think we, we all recognise that this is, this is like the sort, of, the sort of final product, if you like, of much of this evidence is, is, is the guideline movement. So unless we can get the... Um, I mean, that's, that's really the final test, isn't it, of, of, of getting this stuff into practice. Um, and, and there's a, quite a lot of work to do there to make it fit for purpose. Yep.
The seventh manifesto point is to support innovation, quality improvement, and safety through the better use of real-world data. I think that's a really important point because we're seeing what, you know, real-world, the big data approach out there. We have increasingly electronic systems that can collect healthcare data. Can you explain what real-world data is? Yeah, so I think what we think about is, so when you think about trials, you may select a population that you might do some study on. You might give one group the intervention and the other group the control. You might give them a placebo or usual care. But there'll be something artificial about that group of patients that you've selected them in some way. You might, for instance, say we're going to get people who are 65 years old and they may only have one risk factor. But in the real world, people have three or four diseases, multimorbidity. They may have renal problems, they may have mental health problems, so they won't get in the trial, but they would be a real-world patient data set. And in, in the UK, for instance, we have access to three million patient records on the clinical practice research data link. So we can say, let's look at that real-world patient group and let's look at how well they do after a heart attack, for instance, or how well do they do if they're on treatment X or Y. And that is a unique data set that you can do some really interesting things on, but you can also use it in a way that's sloppy. You can use it in a way that you try and infer causation when actually there's only association there. And for instance, one of the important is, how do we better use it? For instance, think about this. So uh, in the BMJ, you publish a lot of real-world data sets, observational studies. But in clinical trials, we say you have to register the trial. And you have to publish the results within one year. And you have to have a protocol that tells us what your outcome is going to be. Yet, when was the last time you got an observational study and you said, did you register it? Where's your protocol? And what were the deviations on that protocol? So we let a lot of the real-world data, all the biases, flood in. And so we haven't done some of this and said, look, this could be really powerful, but we have to improve the quality of this, this type of information to make it really usable and important to healthcare. Otherwise, it could be, and there are over 300,000 of these studies each year, add to the growing knowledge that actually is unusable and makes the problem worse, not better, particularly because it's easier to get to this data. You don't have to go and collect it prospectively. And I'll give you a good example of using observational data and real-world data is the smoking studies that were done in British doctors. So to prove smoking caused lung cancer required 50,000-plus doctors to be followed up prospectively for 50 years. And in about year 15, 20, we said, we definitely can say this causes lung cancer in the 70s. Nowadays, would we still run that study now? Or would we just go and say, let's look at a real-world database and let's try and put something in there and see what comes out? We might get a completely different answer. So I think smoking is one of the biggest effects you'll ever see. And look at the quality of that prospective study compared to a lot of the stuff we use now, which is retrospective. There doesn't seem to be a hypothesis or a protocol. It's not been registered. And it's never clear to me how somebody chose the factors that they say are going to causative or were they just mining the data and by chance this came out or is actually there a real hypothesis there. And I think this is, we have to fix this. And actually, it's, it, it is an important fix. And I suspect that the fix here is on the journals. And a bit like in 2005 when they said, we're only going to accept trials that have registered. We could actually go and say, we're only going to accept observational studies that are registered.
Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's absolutely great. We do actually um, encourage protocols and. Um, I'm not sure about registration, but data sharing of observational studies, just as we do for clinical trials. So, but I absolutely agree with you. The other thing I, I would like to um, the, the whole issue about the, the evidence base for quality improvement, which is a fascinating discussion about whether you can or can't do randomised trials within a quality improvement um, program. And we had a debate about that at Evidence Live, and I think there is more potential for for randomised trials than perhaps has been stressed in the past. And um, how how feels like surgery innovate is one of the uh, real challenges for evidence-based medicine is, is, is iterative innovation um, and how you uh, track that and at what point does, it, does an innovation become a, uh, does, it, does a slight change become a real innovation that needs to be properly tested in a full randomized trial um, and then what, what, what about um, operator uh, skill sets and how that influences the outcomes so all of those things I think the evidence base and the ideal partnership on, on, on <coughs> evidence-based surgery is um, a really great um, group and work, doing fantastic work, which I hope will be part of the, the manifesto um, network. The other thing I just wanted to ask you, Carl, is about post-marketing work, because when we talk about real-world data or observational data, when a drug has gone through approval and has been tried in a phase three trial, the, 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 our ability to actually collect evidence about that in the real world in, in, in real world practice, I think is, is is currently not good enough. And what should we be doing to make that better? Yeah, so that's an important point. I think we've sort of learned this a bit more in devices. So if you think about implantable devices, we've said, look, you need a mandatory registry. So if you have a hip, we, we realize that the, the metal hip complication occurred, but we only found out about it really late, 10, five, 10 years after the event. And now what they've said is everybody who has a hip is on a registry and we annually can audit them. Seems to me for new drugs, we just we have the databases there that actually people who go on a new drug that's just been approved should go into a registry. So it's not we're going to self-select a thousand people. Actually, everybody who goes on the drug, we should be able to report annually, and we should be able to pick out the signals really efficiently. That again, to seems to me common sense that the MHRA would want to do that type of activity. And I think that's the type of thinking we now need. And actually, those with really efficient data systems could do this pretty easily. We do need a bit of thinking then about what we analyze, because remember, we haven't got randomization and we haven't got a, a natural control group. So there are some methodological issues we have to think through for what constitutes a signal, particularly for safety so that we should be thinking. And one of our work has shown consistently that there's a significant delay between, for instance, the first death and when a drug's withdrawn. And that time lag has not changed over the last 30, 40 years. Nobody's done anything more efficient than being able to sort of see the lag and somehow wait till it accumulates. So we have to get much more efficiently at safety particular. Um, Again, it's an interesting issue that we're not getting coordinated approaches. So people do this in a little piecemeal way. And this is a particular issue where drug regulators, such as in the UK, but any, in any country, if they've got the right real-world data systems in place, could be doing. So our eighth point is to educate professionals, policymakers and the public in evidence-based healthcare to make informed choices. So this hits on the issue of how well people can judge the quality of evidence because that's part of it to be skeptical appropriately skeptical about the source of information and the the, the the relevance to what they're doing and how reliable it is but also their ability to 
um, consider how that applies to their own situation or the situation of their patients or, or the um, community they serve. And it's a real challenge, I think, for people in their busy lives to actually make good use of evidence, assuming it's good evidence, um, how, to, how to really apply that to, to real-world situations. I think it's a really important point. And so informed choices is obvious that we need, that should be seeded throughout healthcare. But I'll give you an example. So when you think about why do the public, surely the public don't need to know about evidence-based healthcare? What, what do you mean? But I'm a GP and I often see this. We ask people to engage with healthcare, say for instance in their mid-40s, 50s, and try and interpret issues like cardiovascular risk. We ask them to then think about treatment choices. We ask them to think about the impact of that treatment choice on them and then also to consider about their lifestyle and X. And somehow we expect everybody, and I find that really difficult to understand, and I am educated for 25 years in this year, but the idea you just turn up one day, you're going to take that all on board, and we're going to have a, a, a group, and this is millions of people are going to be able to understand what's going on and why they're taking their treatments and what they're for. It's almost irrational to think you could do that, and particularly do that and turn up and do it in 10 minutes with a general practitioner. So I think... Um, we need a real sea change in the culture of educating the whole public. And I think one of the places we need to start is actually embed this in schools. And when we've done this, we've done a bit of work in schools. They get, the one thing they get is smoking. They've thought that's got through. But if you go into schools and say, well, let's talk about diabetes. Well, they're sort of a little bit, but nobody's got an understanding of the impact of that, what interventions make a difference and also things like your heart health risk and how you might care for yourself. But it's not about telling people what to do. It's about preparing themselves for a lifelong change in the evidence base. So we don't go in and say smoking's good or bad for them. We teach them about observational cohort studies and the Richard Dole study like we did before, and we showed them size of the effect. And it's really big. If you're a lifelong non-smoker compared to smoker, the difference is you'll live 10 years less. Well, that's a huge effect, and we talk about how well the study is and talk about what makes a good study. Now, it's up to you as an individual to decide to smoke or not. It's not my job to tell you what to do. And that's the same for all evidence-based healthcare decisions, and it's the same then in policy. My job in policy is not to go in a room and say, here's what to do. My job is to be a knowledge broker, and that's what the evidence is. So you need people in the room who can say, we understand what the evidence is is about, what it means, and how it should inform that decision. And the final one is to say health professionals at all level, we could radically improve healthcare if all health professionals had an approach that was evidence-based and asked the one thing where I ever go, I said, don't think about critical appraisal. Just ask one question. For every treatment you use, just ask this, how much difference does it make? And then say, how do you know this? And if you do that for everything you do, you cannot avoid an evidence-based approach. And I did this a week ago in a journal club with F1, F2 doctors who had just been qualified. And many of the treatments they were using, they didn't know the amount of benefits and the harms. And it was really interesting for me to say, well, look, let's just try and look up and find out how you might find, if you give somebody an aspirin in a heart attack, 
how many people do you have to give to save one life? Well, as it turns out, based on the aspirin trialist collaboration in the BMJ in 1994, you give 40 people an aspirin, you'll save one life at one month. That's the number needed to treat. Well, that's what you need to know. As opposed to you give aspirin, you save lives. That's not what you need. So that's how we do it. And I'm trying to get a culture in the NHS and in health services that you just go, does it make a difference? And I think if we all ask that once, you'd have a sea change in what we may do more of and what we may stop doing because actually there's no benefit. And then the final point, the ninth point in the manifesto is encourage the next generation of leaders in evidence-based medicine. I just think it's, you know, it's an incredibly important point that actually young researchers, young clinicians, young people are engaged and interested in being critical in terms of every decision that's made, thinking about the issues that we have to solve. And I think what's been great about this meeting We've really incentivized young researchers to come. A third of the people here are young researchers, students, and future leaders in evidence-based medicine. And we're really thinking hard about next year about really incentivizing the leadership approach for this meeting because I think it, it, it does need, and I was very lucky, have mentors like David Sackett, who was my mentor, who can not only inspire you, but also give you the confidence to do something that might be a bit controversial, might make you feel a bit uncomfortable at times. But actually, every time I've done that, and you stick to an evidence-based approach as opposed to an opinionated approach, only good things will happen to you. But we do need all of the people who are a bit older like me, I say like you, Fee, sorry about that, to actually really be thoughtful about encouraging the younger generation going forward. The next generation of leaders is absolutely our responsibility to nurture. And each of us, as Carl has said, he has his mentors. Uh, the BMJ uh, legacy or, or um, lineage, if you like, of the issues that the BMJ has been tackling, along with other major journals, around conflict of interest, around um, trying to be more transparent, robust, improving reporting of trials, is, is the, my, our former editor, Richard Smith, I think, who did a, a fantastic job of, of um, initially recognising the importance of evidence-based medicine for journals, launching new evidence-based medicine journals, one of which Carl is about to um, take over as editor, BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, which David Sackett originally edited, and understanding that um, this was really where we had to put our, 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 put our money and, and um, press for uh, engaging with the controversies that inevitably emerge. And I think one of the things I'd like to stress is, that, is, is the importance of uncertainty, the importance of continuing debate. One of the issues that's, that's been um, in the public domain recently around statins and the idea that we shouldn't debate this because it is dangerous to do so, um, I think is, is, is in itself extremely dangerous. And what I hope is that things like Evidence Live, things like the Evidence Manifesto would give courage to that next generation of, of researchers and um, authors and patients and members of the public to really take on these controversies and not turn away from them. So yesterday we had a session for delegates um, to develop the manifesto further. So tell us about that session and about the next steps for, for this manifesto. Yes, well, I, I, it was a session that gave me a, a bit of worry. Uh, it started out with a chaotic feel to it. 
and actually it really worked in a way that we got everybody to consider to join different groups, whether it was journal editors, researchers, clinicians, patients of public involvement, regulatory agencies, and consider what is it that we should be doing to fix some of these points in the manifesto, who's doing what, what should be done next, and who are you? Trying to get a sort of sense of, I consider we provided a roadmap, and in that roadmap, what I think we need to do is think of the clear points that we should do next. So we're moving to a solution, as opposed to just talking about the, the sort of problem of, like, this is what's happening. It's almost like we've been complaining for 20 years. Did you hear any good ones? Uh, did I hear any good ones? Yeah, I did hear one. I mean, it was a really sort of just even a simple idea. One was a problem that said, actually, one of the barriers was actually language. So we talked about accessibility, didn't they? Needs, research needs to be accessible. And he said, well, if you're not good at English, you can't understand some of this stuff. So he said, for systematic reviews, what we'd like to do is you to produce an automatic summary, automated summary that can be immediately translated into different languages around the world. So you standard phrases. And I thought, well, that's just a really nice, simple idea. So you don't write it in a way where we put in our little phrases in English that is a bit of rhetoric and actually nobody can understand. And I thought, well, that would be really helpful. And automatically generated 40 different countries around the world. That seemed a really nice idea to me. Uh, second idea was the sort of ideas that actually we were looking at the audit and feedback in real time. To, and this is particularly seeming to work for things like publication bias. It seemingly is in terms of that working in that area. And I think yeah. that was quite interesting. Did you hear any good ideas, Fee? I thought it was a great session. Um, two reasons. One was that we made sure that the, the jobs were being uh, suggested not by the people within each sector, but by other people coming in. Um, and the other thing was that we were really asking people to be specific about the problem and the thing that they were going to solve and who needed to act. Um, and so uh, giving an example, there was quite a lot of anger about the peer review process and uh, people who felt it wasted their time. And, you know, in the end, they you know struggling to get stuff published. And, um, you know, in my view, in the long run, the solution is that research shouldn't be published in medical journals at all. It should be on databases and the journals should evolve into um, secondary uh, review function of sort of kite marking the best research and we can find online ways of allowing research studies to progress from an initial published um, sort of preprint, if you like, in current terminology and through perhaps grades of, of um, uh, reliability of the research as it gets critiqued. Now we're, we're a bit away from that although there are models that are looking at that but I think we have to really put aside our current uh, constraints or um, concerns about the status quo and uh, our own vested interests when it comes down to it and think about what's really best for the future of science and the future of, of healthcare. A challenge for us if we really want to go down that route is to first of all this the work on the manifesto to, to really put, put more concrete proposals in and to, to, to road test them with the various stakeholder groups and make sure as we've said that we bring in all the people who are doing great work in these areas already and then to get buy-in from big institutions or from big funding agencies to make them really feel that this is this is this is to, to not do this would in itself be be negligent and 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 unethical at one level. So that's that's going to be a task of of talking to people and and getting their commitment to sign up to it. Tell us more about the next steps. 
So we have the job list from the session yesterday. We're going to put that up online. We're going to invite additional examples of jobs that each part of the ecosystem could take on. We're going to ask for feedback on those. We hope to be able to consolidate that into something that we can share more formally, perhaps through an article in the BMJ or elsewhere. Um, and the more people we can draw into to that, the better. I guess then it'll be a question of trying to prioritise those, really make them concrete, and turn them into a um, like a, almost like a code of practice. Well, I also think as well what we'll do, uh, just as you were saying it, is making me think we could actually say once we put up the job list and we'll, we'll, we'll incentivise and say if you're working in this area, come and tell us about it, that, you know, Evidence Live in 2018. We'd really like to hear from you because I think this is something that I think you can't do in isolation. So we talked last night about the idea of a pre-day and, and possibly in the sort of sense of a hack day that people mm. might come and by then hopefully we will have got these problems and the job lists sort of honed down so that we, so that people could say, yeah, I really want to spend half a day um, coming up with a solution to that and then through that we would effectively, they would create a, an authorship group who would take that forward and present it perhaps subsequently um, at Evidence Live or... What I've learned over time is you just need a collaborative team you need a group of people to work with, and that might be in your own institution, but often it's people outside who are committed to doing that bit of extra work around the edges. And I think, I think it'd be really good if people think, yeah, I am working in that area. I am trying to increase the existing use of evidence. And uh, I had somebody just out there said, can I come next year? We really want to be able to show you that we can do this in a much more quicker, efficient way and he wanted to do something as opposed to the slow systems of doing a systematic review. So anybody who's got an idea when we put that and wants to come to Evidence Live will listen because we're really interested in workshops or people telling us about how they're trying to fix some of the problems with the E in EBM. You've been listening to Fiona Godley and Carl Hennigan. The manifesto and those jobs are all on the website, evidencelive.org forward slash manifesto. As Carl said, we're really keen to hear from you, so tell us what you think should be fixed. That's all for this podcast. Keep an ear out for more about the Evidence Manifesto by subscribing to us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>